And we are live. Welcome to episode 3145 of the Survival Podcast, kicking off here on a Monday. Um, hope everybody had a great weekend. I had a semi-productive weekend. Didn't get a ton done. It's a bazillion degrees outside. And here we are about to talk about fall gardening today. It is the time. More of that in just a second. I'll tell you what I did get done today. I got a bunch of junk cleared out off my uh, outdoor kitchen where I haven't even wanted to be cooking out there because of the heat lately because we got in a brand new thing. I'm not big on, like, things for the sake of things, but I got a brand new thing and an expensive thing. And it was one of those expensive things that will soon be coming to T-Spaz, and I'll give you where you can get, you know, things that are like it that are a little less and a little more and, and the trade-offs. But it's one of those things that even though it was an expensive thing, once you buy it, you go, should have bought the expensive thing a long time ago. Those who follow me on social media may know, yes, it was the commercial chamber vacuum sealer, which is way different than a standard vacuum sealer. Um, big, heavy, bulky machine, but, man, we, the little bit of uh, work we've put into it already and used it for, it's like, where has this thing been my entire life? Uh, so that was, like, the big happenings of my weekend. Otherwise, I spent most of my weekend – uh, just hanging out with my wife. We went to the pool. We drank some beers. We hung out with the dogs. We continued to train the new dog. Just a, a good weekend. Anyway, what are we going to talk about today? Yeah, fall gardening. Fall gardening. Let's, let's talk a little bit about that and why we're doing it right now. Um, today it will be a, over 100 degrees in much of the nation. It will be 104, I think, is the forecast here today. And it's just like absolutely miserable by midday. It's like, you feel like you walk outside, you feel like it's an oven. And here's this maniac, Jack Spierko. We're going to talk about fall gardening today. Let me, except, yeah, it sucks. I mean, right now the grass is brown. If somebody flips a cigarette out of a car window right now, they need their ass kicked. It's an incredible fire danger. About the only thing that is thriving right now are snakes and lizards and grasshoppers and things that eat grasshoppers. I just walked around my garden site um, right before starting about 30 minutes ago and a big bull snake went up into the garden and I tried to find it. It's amazing how those big guys can disappear like that. It's not a very big garden site, uh, but it's just miserable out there. Uh, my grandfather referred to August in, in Pennsylvania, not Texas, but Pennsylvania's dog days. And what he meant by that is it's a time of, time of the year when you don't even want to really pet the dog when the dog's outside because the dog might bite you because he's so miserable in the heat. Right? Like it's just, the type of thing where you're like, I'm really not thinking about fall gardening. But if you don't think about it right now, this is where you're going to be when it's time to plant for the fall. You're going to be a dollar, a dollar late, a dollar short and a day late. It'll, and you only get like a pretty narrow window. We're going to talk about how to determine that window when plants need to go in the ground and it needs to be late enough that we're past the peak heat and early enough that we have time to either get a crop before a freeze or get plants hardened to a point where they can handle the light first freezes. And now is the time to be th doing calculations right now about when to start plants that are going to be started indoors. Yeah, we start indoors for a fall. I know it sounds crazy. Not everybody does, but some of us do. If it's 100 plus degrees outside, you don't want to try to start baby plants in 100 degree heat. They'll either grow too fast, they'll grow wrong, or they'll die. Right? The same thing with trying to start them outside when it's freezing. We have to mitigate that with shade or something. So, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about looking at this from a standpoint of not just what do you do for your fall garden. Let's say you're not going to have a fall garden. 
We could actually call this show What to Do with Your Garden in the Fall. Because the answer of I'm not going to do anything is generally a bad answer. We'll talk about why that's the case as well. But let's, do you want me to freak you out a little bit about how little time you really have here? Do you know how many days we have till Thanksgiving right now? 102. It's going to be Thanksgiving in 102 days. Um, it's 133 days until Christmas. 133 days. You know, when you were a little kid and you used to make the Christmas chain starting like December 1, you pull the chain link off, you count down to Christmas when you get your presents and whatever. 100, 133 days sounds like a long time. For a grown-ass man or woman, you know, 133 days is bam. Uh, right now, I have about 90 days until my average first frost date. 90 days. 100 plus degrees, 90 days, it's likely that we'll have at least a light frost. Not guaranteed, but likely. If you live in, like, Pennsylvania, you have about 60 to 65 days. If you live in Pennsylvania, you should already be putting your fall crops in the garden. So I'm a little bit later than I usually am uh, with this topic this year. So if you snoozed, you lose in some parts of the country, already, unless you're going to use a greenhouse cold frame, something like that. So there's still time. Uh, and then we have Rachel following the rules without even being told the rules yet today. If you want to ask a question, I try to do questions at the end of these episodes. Please put the first couple words, just like Rachel's here, and we will get to you, Rachel. In fact, this is part of the show. But see, Rachel did it perfectly, so I'm using her as an example for the other people. If you put the first couple words, couple, three, four words in all caps, I will hit a little star, and that will make sure that we are able to, uh, to have you in queue for answering a little bit later on. And then see my disclaimer down there. I will never contact you for any personal information or private chat, et cetera, in the video comments. Just because you see my logo does not mean that it's me. And I put out a video about 30 minutes ago on Instagram saying that in two minutes or less. So it would fit in Instagram's uh, allotted time for videos. Guys, um, there's a lot of people trying to scam folks out there under my name. And just understand, YouTube doesn't really care. Instagram doesn't really care. Facebook doesn't really care. I don't even use Facebook. Um, most of these, Twitter doesn't really care. They don't do anything to shut these people down, and I can't do it. So if you think you need to con communicate with me in anything other than a generic way, the way we do that is email, jack at the survivalpodcast.com, TSPC in the subject line. If you're not talking to me in email, assume that it's possible that you're not talking to me at all times. Anyway, and if you're talking to somebody with an email that's not that email, you're not talking to me. And if somebody's asking you for personal information, you're not talking to me because I wouldn't do that. I don't want your personal information. It's too much of a responsibility. Moving on, I want to, uh, before we get into today's topic, uh, remind you about our sponsor of the day. And I think our sponsor of the day, I think I saw him in the chat, John Bush. And uh, what I want to do is I want to actually share John's video about the Exit and Build uh, seminar is coming up on budget homesteading. And uh, I want to let him speak for himself with this one. I'm going to mute my mic. I will be monitoring the chat. Last week when I did this, I ended up with no audio in the recording. So if there's any problems with the audio, somebody in chat let me know about it. Hey, it's John. And Rebecca, we are so excited to tell you about the Homesteading on a Budget Workshop. That's right. There's all sorts of inflation, supply chain problems, economic disruption, and we think it's absolutely important that people become very conscious of how they spend, how they prep, and how they live their lives. 
Absolutely. So we'll be rolling through all sorts of topics, food production, shelter, doing more with less. That's We're bringing right. in industry experts to help shed some light on these different topics. Yeah, Rebecca and I moved on to a 10-acre homestead about a year ago. And when we first met four or five years ago, we both had the same dream of owning property, building an intentional community. And we knew in order to accomplish that dream, we had to make some sacrifices. So what did we do? We ended up moving into a 400-square-foot tiny home with four people. We lived in there full-time for over a year. I was there, well, almost two years, really. Um, so working in the tiny home industry, embracing the minimalist lifestyle, also that we could save up a down payment for this beautiful 10-acre homestead. So in the workshop, we want to teach you some of the secrets that we learned on how to stretch your dollar, how to do more with less. We're going to talk about strategic grocery runs. We're going to talk about some of the food preparedness items that we like to buy in bulk. We're going to talk about how to beat inflation by stocking up and buying in bulk in the present moment. And then even if you don't need it for prepping, you could just mix it into your, your food for the week. Uh, we're going to talk about food production. We're going to talk about how to grow food. Even if you live in an apartment, your back porch, whatever it may be, you want to tell about our special guest? Yeah, we actually are really honored to invite Nomad Brad to speak about living tiny, doing more with less, and also Marjorie Wildcraft uh, from the Grow Network. Yeah, there's Nomad Brad right there, actually. Say hi, Nomad Brad. Nomad Brad is the first community member. We now have a second community member, but he lived, he converted a U-Haul box van into this awesome little nice luxurious cruiser that he cruises around. He's a nomad. I've seen on tiny home tours. And he's a living testament. He actually lives here free of charge. He provides so much value. He's such a good guy. We're about to go to the beach. He's going to take care of the house, take care of the pets. And so he is an example of how he lives big on very little. So he's going to teach you some of the secrets that he used as a nomad. Of course, Marjorie Wildcraft is an expert in food production. She's going to teach us yeah, all sorts of high, plentiful, bountiful ways to grow food. So we're going to teach you that much more. We're going to talk about budgeting. We're going to talk about cutting unwanted expenses. And really, it's all going to culminate in this idea that we can put forward a vision for how we want to live our lives. And if we're conscious about our life design, we can take practical steps in the present moment so as to create a better future for ourselves, our family, and the future generations to come. So, amen. Amen. All right. So we we hope you'll check us out at the Exit and Build Homestead on a Budget Workshop. Click the button and register today. See you there. So, guys, um, if you want to attend that, and it's a virtual summit, so you can do it from anywhere in the world, uh, there's a link in the video notes below. There'll be a link with the audio post, and if you're on my daily mail, it will go out all week long with a little blurb and a link to it as well. Definitely will be worth learning from people who have done the thing that you say you want to do. So anyway, moving on, let's get into talking about today's subject. And I want to talk to you about the idea that, well, I'm not going to have a fall garden, so this doesn't matter. So a little short segment up front about why it still matters and why the idea to do nothing is a terrible idea. I want to start out with it's a really bad idea to waste an opportunity. Just straight up there, like, wasting opportunity is a bad idea. I think we would all agree with that. So we have an opportunity when our beds are not growing food for us to kind of recharge the soil battery. And this is, like, one of my things. I, I You know, I have my 12 tenets of modern survivalism. I probably need something like 10 tenets of absolutes in life. 
right? Things that are just true in life and you need to think about them on an ongoing basis and how it applies to you. And one of those is everything is a battery. Everything is a battery. Everything is a battery. A tank of water is a water battery. An ice cube is a thermal battery. The soil that you grow your plants in is a biological battery. It's a nutrient battery. It's a mineral battery. And as we grow plants, we take something from the soil, and so it's important to recharge the battery. So here's some things that you can do to kind of recharge that battery. One thing we can do is add things directly to our soil this time of year. And the beautiful thing is if we're not going to grow and we just kind of add this stuff to the top and then we tarp it, it will the little soil organisms will do most, much of the incorporation for us. So this is a great time to add biochar, manure, green sand, and any other amendments. A good um, fertilizer like like uh, Dr. Earth, this would be a great time to put down uh, a good amount of Dr. Earth fertilizer. And if nothing else, just do that, throw some mulch on top of it, throw a tarp over your bed, and it'll be waiting for you in spring. And remember, if you guys are MSB members, we have a 10% off all Dr. Earth products, uh, discount for members only. So uh, that would be one thing you could do. If you're not going to tarp it, you're not going to do those other things, at least mulch. Like this is a great time of year to do a heavy mulch. If you're if you're willing to do some planting but you don't really want to garden, then this is a good time of, good time of year to do a cover crop, something like a winter pea, vetch, daikon radish, purple top turnip. That would be like a great mix. And now you can do whatever you want. Don't I, a lot of you are like well, what cover crop mix do I do and what percent? Look, guys, this is not hard. But what you want to do is something where you can look at it and go, I got a nitrogen fixer. So bell beans, winter peas, uh, vetch, those are all nitrogen fixers. You want to do something where we have some significant root mass that will rot in the soil. That's why I said turnip, and that's why I said daikon radish. Now, we can even harvest some of those for ourselves, but think about a daikon radish. will grow about two feet deep. The top of it will be as big around as your wrist. And even halfway down, we're still talking about, you know, a good freaking, you know, one-inch diameter root. And if we don't harvest that, it's going to rot in the soil. It's going to be organic matter injected into the soil. And as it rots, things like earthworms are going to come eat it. And what do earthworms do after they eat? They poop. So if you just planted nothing but daikon radish, that would be okay. It's not what I would do, but it would be okay because it would be like having somebody come to your house with a drill auger, like something you put um, an umbrella in the ground with or like a tulip auger. And just every couple of feet or every foot or every six inches, augering a hole in your garden for you and filling it up with worm castings. How valuable would that be? It would be extremely – what would you pay somebody to do that? Say, you know what, dude, I'll come to your garden and every six inches I'll auger a hole two feet into your garden, and fill it with worm castings for you. Well, you can do that for like 50 cents worth of seed. A lot, you can do a lot with 50 cents worth of daikon radish seed. Turnips, it's more of this big bulb, and maybe you take some of them, maybe you use some of the greens, etc. But 
you're wasting the opportunity if you don't at least, you know, do one of these things. I'm not saying you have to cover crop or you have to mulch or you have to tarp. You should do something, whatever works best for you. And I think that as we go through today, instead of telling you now what you should do and giving you the what the the, the, the components to the, the it depends that answer the question, I think we'll discover that as we go through this together. And you'll figure out, like, how do you identify compared to how I'm going to tell you how I identify as a gardener in the winter? Like, what are your goals? Is it worth full-on gardening? Do you maybe put... 80% of your beds to sleep in some way or cover crop and then tarp after the cover crop gets killed by the hard freeze and then only actually protect and grow in 20%. Maybe that makes sense for you. That's kind of where I'm going this year, right? Um, but you should do something. And it's also a time to heavy harvest your summer crops. So this is a time like as you head into fall, you really need to like And, and for you guys that are in the northeast where the temperatures are already starting to come off, even though it's hot during the, the middle of the day, like in P Pennsylvania, I know like this time of year, like it's like 96, but it feels like 115 here because of the humidity. But at night, like as soon as the sun goes down, it's like in the 60s and the 50s sometimes. Like as soon as that starts, you need to aggressively harvest because your plants are going to get a second wind and there's nothing that makes them produce like harvesting. The idea that, like, well, if we wait a little longer before we take it, it'll get bigger. No. Like, peppers, tomatoes, all your nightshades, harvest. You guys in the northern climates where you can grow broccoli through the, through the summer, like, just aggressively prune off those side shoots, those little extra broccolis. Whatever you can harvest, harvest beans, harvest anything big enough to take constantly. And as those plants enter that fall season and the cool, cool air comes in, and they don't have any seed on them, any next generation on them, they're like that internal innate intelligence of all living beings is like, shit, I need to propagate. So if the bean has lots of beans on it, I don't need to put energy into propagating. I have plenty of bean seeds. The next generation of beans is good. So I'm going to put my energy into being a bigger, stronger plant and staying alive as long as possible. But if it's like winter is coming and I have no beans to, to, to seed the next generation, Then it's like, oh, crap, blossoms. I have to put energy into blossoming. So harvest, harvest, harvest. And definitely some crops, when that first freeze hits, it actually doesn't just kill the plant. It ruins the crop. So, for instance, if you get a, a, a good freeze, it doesn't have to be a little bit more than a light frost, but it only have to be a hard freeze. It basically ruins peppers. So have a plan for kind of that last, you're going to be like, you look at the weather report, and oh, shit, three days from now, it's going to hit 28. And you go out and you, what do you do with it? Right? Have that plan, and maybe getting a little bit ahead would be a good thing. So even if you're not going to garden through the fall, those are the things to be thinking about. The next thing is, this is a great time of year to do new bed establishment, to, to say, I, I want to expand Or if you don't have a garden yet, I'm going to have a garden, but I don't want to do a fall garden. I want to do a spring garden. Make your bed now. Make your bed before you have to lie in it, right? So there's a couple reasons this is a good time of year to do this. One is generally you have a lot of other things off the table. Like if you wait till spring to put your garden bed in, you are probably going to be late doing it. If you wait until wintertime, it may be really cold and you're not going to want to do it. 
If you do it right now, you can kind of take your time. Maybe it's a job like you're going to put in two four-by-eight race bets. That's honestly a half-day job if you bust ass. But if you take your time, it could be a five- or six-weekend job, but you could do a really great job. That could include putting in automated irrigation, sourcing your fill material if you don't have it on site, um, doing your soil amendments, maybe planting a fall crop, cover crop, maybe just mulching and tarping and getting everything ready. And so you have the time, but the other reason this is such a great time of year is that we, we have two major changes in soil life cycles with temperature. We have the declining change and we have the inclining change. So the declining change is happening right now. And that means that soil life is very active and it's slowing down, slowing down, and slowing down over time. And so if we prep a new area, and we take something like old chicken feed or dry molasses that's going to feed soil organisms and we put active compost down and we do all the, and we put down, uh, mycorrhizal fungi like Dr. Earth. One of the reasons I like it as a, as a fertilizer so much is not just a great fertilizer. It has beneficial bacterial and mycorrhizal fungi in it. Right now they're going to be very, very active and they're going to start expanding the soil life web and they're going to get a good bot, let's say body count up a soil web up and that slowly will slow down into the winter and then they go to sleep. But then it's all there and ready to wake up with the soil where if you just try to start establishing that in brand new beds in early spring, it's like trying to get teenagers who stayed up till 4 a.m. out of bed at 6.30 a.m. on a Saturday, you know, during their growth spurt. It's really, really difficult to get it off the ground early. And this is why you'll find that you seem to need so much more fertility to get plants going in the spring than the fall because the soil life is asleep. So we're going to have to rely, even in a good situation, more on things like a Dr. Earth or other organic fertilizer because the, the soil organisms are tired and sleepy and slow and cold. So there is nitrogen, there is micronutrient and macronutrient in the soil, but the plant may not be able to get to it without the soil life web awake and thriving, which it will be right now and, and, and will become more so as you go into like September, October. It will have a party in September and October. So it'd be great if you had all the stuff that it needed ready to go right there. Um, it's also a great time to do site selection because you can see where the most intense sun this time of year is going to be. And you can project where the most intense sun is going to be in the middle of winter. And if you're going to grow through your winter, you want to mitigate solar exposure this time of year. This is where it gets beat on, assuming you're in the south and it's really hot. And you want to enhance it in the winter. So you can start thinking about that as well. Uh, next, as you're thinking about putting in fall crops, I think there's some really great things for you to think about before because I do have a whole list of like 10 really great crops to grow and a lot of people have asked already in the chat we're going to get there but protection or not protection or not so I'm going to give you some tools here in a second so you can do some calculations about when you need when you need to like start plants when you need to plan on putting out your protection like how to figure all that out but is it even worth it for you so, for instance, I have a 230-day-plus growing season here in Texas. 
do I really need to worry about the hundred ish days where I really can't grow? Or is it better for me to just say, all that stuff that I just said, that's, that's what I'm going to do. Or is it better for me to say, I'm going to take one bed with as little vegetables as we eat anyway. I'm going to take one bed and I'm going to grow winter greens in that one bed. And if I need any more than that, I can, I can turn up a little hydro system indoors, perfectly protected where I don't care if it's zero degrees outside. And that can produce things like, you know, mustard greens and arugulas and spinach and lettuces in spades. And it's more than we need. And some of us, we're just better off kind of like really getting the most out of the fall garden, planting things that can handle even moderate freezes once they're mature, planting the plant so it's well matured before that happens. And when nature finally takes it, mulch, amend, tarp, done for the rest of the season. Many of us will find that that's most beneficial. Those of us with shorter growing seasons may not feel that way at all. We may feel I need to, I need to maximize my production throughout the year. And so I think it's important that we immediately from the beginning start thinking about what amount of protection, if any, do I want to use? And if I'm not going to use protection for my crops, how, what does that look like? As far as when is everything just not worth worrying about anymore? And even if some stuff's still alive, mulch tarp, right? Um, another thing is killing weeds. So this year has been, except for one bed, because I've decided like I couldn't keep everything alive this year, except for one, one bed, this year's been kind of a wash for me. I've had some production in some other beds and all, but none of it was going to be fantastic. So what I did, I literally stopped watering. I let everything in those beds wither and become weakened. Then I soaked them so that they were good and wet and hydrated completely through. And then I put clear plastic on them, and right now they're solarizing, and I'm going to be planting them into the fall. So I could do that with clear plastic, and I'm trying that because Nick Ferguson has always said to do it. I usually use black plastic to do that with. I've actually got two of them already solarizing. The third one I'm going to hit with black plastic and just see which one does better. But there's a point where maybe it's time to just call it on a bed. Like if you have a bed that just is not – like you look at it and go, everything that's still okay in there, if it produces for me before fall, I'm going to get 10 bucks worth of shit out of it. And I can just go buy 10 bucks worth of shit, and I can just knock this – like if you have a weed problem in that bed, you can just knock it out by tarping it right now and then planting it, let's say, in mid-September after it's had a good 30 days under tarp, maybe that's what you do instead. And you'll find that when you plant into a bed like that, where the weeds have all been knocked off, your plants really get out out of the gate with a great head start. It's also a good time to be starting seeds, and this is something that a lot of us don't really think about. And I don't think we think about it because it's so counterintuitive to why we start seeds in the, in the winter for spring planting. Now, we do that, of course, because our plants will die. Our plants will die if we take a tomato seed and we have a really warm day in February and we put that seed in the ground and we water it and the soil does manage to warm up enough and it does manage to germinate. We have a little tomato plant about that big and it goes down to 20 degrees. It's dead. And it's real easy to understand that. 
what a lot of people don't understand about your frost tolerant or even freeze tolerant plants. When they're itty bitty, the freeze will kill them. It will kill them. If you have a little bitty broccoli plant like this big with just two leaves on it, it's not even got its true leaves yet, and it goes down to 21 degrees, it will die. But you know what else it will do? It will die in the heat. Or it will grow weird. It will grow really fast and lanky and like go to seed before it should. It doesn't really want to be in this hot environment. Or it won't germinate in the soil. So what ends up happening is we have to wait till the conditions. It will kill. Hunter says it will kill. It will kill it. Yes, it will. Uh, we have to wait till the soil temperature drops and the ambient temperature drops to like the perfect germinating environment for that little broccoli or cabbage. Now, the problem is the delta between that and the freeze may not be very big. So what happens is we plant these frost-tolerant plants, but they're not fully established. And then the frost or the freeze comes, and it either kills them, right, or it drastically impairs their growth. So we want a robust, healthy plant. We want our broccoli when the first frost hits, to already have like the first bit of the floret in the center. That's what we want out of broccoli. And if you do that, I have pictures, old pictures, I need to dig them up someday, where I had broccoli growing in my winter garden in Arlington, Texas, and we got freezing rain. And there's heads of broccoli like, you know, perfect cutting size on the plant. There's a little bit of frost burn on some of the leaves. And there's literally icicles hanging off of it. And I cut those center heads out and it produced side shoots all the way up until it got too hot. It is incredibly uh, hardy in freezing weather if established. Same with Brussels sprouts, basically all your cold crops, uh, cauliflowers and cabbages. If they are, if they are well established. When that first cold weather comes in, until you get serious freezing weather, they will generally be fine. And they're also plants that when it gets really cold, if you give them a little bit of protection, they kind of go into a stasis. They grow really, really slow. And it's basically storing them fresh and alive versus growing them. And that can be done with tunnel covers and things like that that we'll talk about in a bit. But we need to think this way. If we, if we think I'll just plant into the ground, if we're doing cover crops or Peas and stuff like that, it's probably fine, maybe. Um, but if we're talking about a lot of the other crops that we want to grow, we're, we're better off. And what we need to do is just the opposite of planting in the spring. And so what we want to do is we want to find out what our last frost date is. And I'm going to show you how to do that right now for those of you in the video. Um, this is kind of my favorite site to use, almanac.com. And you can see I already have my zip code in here, and I'm going to hit search. In the little search field, then it's going to come up, and it's going to tell me right here that my last spring frost is generally around March 22, and that my first fall frost is generally around November 12th, which is right in the middle of the fall workshop, right? You guys have been here, and you know that doesn't always happen. But there's often we don't see a frost until Thanksgiving. And you'll notice that uh, that gives me a really long growing season, but that's actually misleading in a lot of ways because I have this hole. Generally, July and August are just miserable here. And what we're doing with our plants during this time of year is we're getting them through it, and they're actually going to produce for us in September and October. 
So right now, the one bed that I've decided to go ahead and like keep running this year, the pepper plants are gorgeous. They're literally three foot high. They're luscious green. They're beautiful. They're healthy. They're happy. And they're producing almost nothing. They have just finally begun to start to put blossoms on as the day length decreases as we head toward September and that fall equinox on the 22nd. By the way, that's like 40 days away or, or less, right? I don't remember if I figured that out. Uh, 38 days. 38 days between now and the fall equinox, the official first day of fall. Like That's why we're talking about this today. Um, so you calculate that. And then you figure out, well, how long do the seeds need to be large enough to put out? And you're going to find most of the plants that we're going to do are going to be in the range of three to five weeks. And most of them, you know, planting on four would be about perfect. So a four-year, a four-week-old cabbage plant, broccoli plant, uh, kale plant, etc., will be in really great shape. It will be in really great shape to go in the ground, assuming you did your job as, as starting seeds. And I wanted to show you one other thing that I use a lot because we tend to estimate things in time poorly in our heads when it comes to days from now and how long we have to get off, get off, get on the stick, so to speak, and get things done. So this is one of my favorite little websites. It's uh, time and date. Com and they have a day duration calculator. So you can say, for instance, okay, I want to know the distance between today and my average last frost date, I believe it was 11-12-2022. Calculate duration, and it'll tell me right there um, I have 89 days from right now. I have 89 days till my my first frost date on average. I have three months. So that means that I want very healthy, mature plants by then. And that means I need to probably start my plants around the 30th of August to give them four weeks to put them out around the 1st of October so that at that point they have six weeks in the ground. They're probably close to their first harvest if they're a cut-and-come-again type crop. Lettuces, I could push out a little bit further, especially like a cut-and-come-again lettuce. But broccoli, cauliflower, cabbage, those types of things, I probably want to start them about two weeks from now. It's still going to be hot as hell. It's still going to be hot as hell, and that's why I would want to start those crops indoors in a more controlled environment. Um, or if you're planning on getting your plants to the nursery, I, I don't see any problem with doing that. But I think you need to be communicating with your nursery providers right now. For instance, the question would be, will you have fall vegetable plants? And what fall vegetable plants will you have? Because when we go out in February, March, and we start looking at nurseries, including the box store nurseries, everybody has plants. And everybody has all the plants, including a lot of plants that probably aren't suitable for planting in spring in your climate. For instance, if you go out here in March, March to early April, they'll have broccoli everywhere. It's a terrible time to plant broccoli in our climate. And it's actually kind of hard to find pre-started broccoli plants like in September, which is a perfect time to plant broccoli in our climate because 
most of their big box stores, they just work with like Bonnie's or whatever. And they work on what's aggregate average for the country because early April is a great time to plant broccoli in New Hampshire or Pennsylvania or North Carolina for that matter. And so it's the, you know, the preponderance of the states. What you need to look for is your smaller nurseries. If you have feed stores and stuff like that and see if you can pre-order exactly what you want. And I know we're the survival podcast. We're supposed to be self-sufficient. All, but what I always say is gardening's a skill. Master the gardening skill, then master the seed starting skill. Right? And, or what is the price? If, if, you know, if you're buying bonnies for $4 a plant for one broccoli plant, that doesn't ever financially make sense. If you're just learning and you're okay with it, that's fine, but it doesn't make sense. But if you have a place that's doing like $1.99, For a six-pack or a nine-pack of broccoli or cabbage, and I know they're good quality plants. To tell you the truth, guys, it's hard for me to pass that up. And uh, we'll get to your question there, Gooley, when we come back, even though you didn't do it in all caps. I'm just letting you know we didn't ignore you. And asking about direct seeding. That's it. And it depends. That's it. It depends. Um, in a lot of climates, if you're in like a mid-Atlantic climate, We'll go ahead and answer that one now, and I'll destart you. If you're in a mid-Atlantic climate, a lot of these brassias, like your coal, in your coal crops, like your, your, your kales, your broccolis, your cabbage, Brussels sprouts, you can absolutely direct sow and do well, and you probably need to be direct sowing about now or within a couple weeks at the most. If you're in my climate, there's almost no window for it. You almost can't get it in and get it established unless we get – a freak year where we don't get really cold weather until mid-December. And it happens. It happens. South Central PA, I would have done it last week, but you probably can still do it. And you want good mulch. You want to keep your soil temperature, you know, around 68 degrees for germinate. 68 to 74 degrees to germinate those. Anyway, moving on. Um, if you're going to get plants from a nursery, again, I would get in touch with them right now. And make sure they're going to have what that you think they're going to have. And again, your small nurseries and stuff like that. If you're buying a couple tomatoes every year and you're buying individual plants or some bigger plants like that, that's fine. When you start talking about most, most of the stuff that is good fall to winter crops, if you're buying in anything other than six packs, you're financially not stable. You're not going to make money on your garden. And I don't mean make money as in sell the crop. I mean, you're going to have more money into buying the plants than the value of the produce that you're going to get out of it. So you need to be looking for a way to do that. And it's also maybe a good time of year to, maybe a month ago would have been, to get on sites like next door and go, does anybody start lots of plants for their fall garden? Would you be interested in starting some plants for me and doing kind of the handshake neighbor cash across the fence post deal? Let's talk about some crops that are really great crops, and I'll give you a little bit on them, not a huge amount. I don't want to go too long today. Um, but my, my top ten crops to consider for your fall garden. Number one is spinach. It is it, – it's a weird thing. Texas is actually one of the top spinach-producing states in the country. But we produce all of it from, like, October into February. Like, you cannot grow it the rest of the year here. And it's being harvested in, like, late October into, like, January mostly. Mostly, not all. But it's a great, like, you would think it's just terrible. You would you would just think it's a terrible uh, place to grow spinach. It isn't. 
It's this time of year. And I think many of you, like even in Pennsylvania, we never grew spinach in the summer. We would grow it in the spring, and when it would start to bolt, we just let it go. And then we would grow it for a little bit in the fall. But honestly, my homestead in Pennsylvania, that my that my grandparents' homestead, once we started shooting doves, it was pretty much we were just harvesting and bringing it to grandma to have it preserved or giving it to neighbors. No real – once hunting season start, started, very little work went into the garden after that. And that's – that includes we didn't do anything like I started out with, like adding amendments in the fall, tarping in the fall. And that resulted in me working my ass off as a teenager, redigging every bed, which is why I don't let that shit happen anymore because I don't want to have to do that every year. Uh, next up, chard. Now, the interesting thing about chard is chard you can do really well with in the summer and in the winter. I've had Swiss chard get well-established and then grew all through my summer. Maybe I had to prune it way back if it got a little bit wanting to bolt to prevent it from bolting. And then, like, take off anew in the fall and grow through. And it's supposed to be a biannual, but I've actually had some Swiss chard one pruned down to the roots and uh, mulched make it three seasons before I couldn't keep it from bolting. But it's definitely a crop that you can start indoors. And that, I would say, with Swiss chard, you need like three weeks at most, maybe four at the outer end, depending on your system. And then it's ready to go in the ground as a transplant. And it is a fantastic winter crop. It takes the most crushing, brutal freezes to kill it. And it tastes better in cold weather. Even though it will grow well in the in the summer in a lot of your climates, it tastes best in the winter. And it's a really great crop because it has a lot of it has a lot of like color variation, size variation, uh like bright lights that gives you like a, a mix of all the different colors. The peppermint is beautiful, the orange is beautiful. Um Ford Hork, Ford Hork Giant gets huge. Right, so you can grow like you can have an incredible contrast in salad or cooking greens just in Swiss chard. And then the other thing with Swiss chard, if you do let it get large, you can cut your ribs out. You can use your leaf as a salad green, a cooking green, what have you, and you can still chop up your stalks and use them as like almost a completely different cooking vegetable. In fact, when I when I cook Swiss chard here. If I am going to cook the green and the stalks, I separate them, and I'll and I'll throw the the stalk in much earlier and only finish the green at the very end and wilt it like spinach. So I'll cook the stalk more like asparagus or green bean, and the leaf more like spinach. Next, beets. Everything I said about chard, except you get a beet yield. And my favorite beets are actually golden beets. Uh, I've become less and less less enamored with red beets over time, but roasted golden beet is friggin' delicious. And the beet greens taste just like Swiss chard. And so everything I said about Swiss chard, garlic. Really, you're planting garlic in the fall to harvest next year. But this is the time, unless you're tarping, put garlic everywhere. I mean, we what we'll do, we'll use our garlics, and you get the great big bulbs and, and uh, great big uh, cloves. The cloves are the little fiddly ones. We plant all those. We plant them in our ground. We plant them in with the flowers. We plant them in our aquaponic systems, our hydroponic systems. In the aquaponics and hydroponic systems, I've never grown garlic big enough to get a bulb. I just take the tops, and but the, the rest just goes in the ground. It's great because who doesn't want more garlic? 
If it, if it just goes to seed and propagates itself, that's fine too. Uh, it's good at uh, making pests go away. Pests don't t- tend to care for it. And it, you, you really don't have to protect it or do anything. It's just September it, in most of the country is when you want to be planting your garlics. Onions and leeks. We do not really do great with onions here as far as big bulb onions, like yellows and whites and stuff like that. Um, they tend to really do really good up in northern climates. They like those huge, long summer days to set those really big roots. But we do really well with green onion here. And green onion... If it's established, I've not, I've seen green onion killed one time two seasons ago when we had the big Texas freeze that everybody freaked out about everywhere, where the lake froze over and it was down below freezing without coming above freezing for two weeks. That killed literally everything. Every other winter that I've been through here, all my green onion lived through the whole winter. And people are under this illusion that green onion needs to be harvested, you know, when they're itty-bitty. You can let green onion get pretty big. Just when they do go to seed, they're kind of not really good tasting anymore. What you do with them then, cut the stalks or pull them, throw them in your dehydrator, dehydrate the crap out of them, put them in a coffee grinder, grind them into onion powder, and use them as onion powder. They're actually fantastic that way. Um, broccoli. That's my favorite crop this time of year. That's what I'll be starting in a couple of weeks, a bunch of waltham broccoli. This is it's the only time of year I can really effectively grow it here. And like I said, it has to be really, really cold before it'll kill off your plants. Um, with a little bit of protection, you, you can grow broccoli easily through our winters. It will actually end up the case that it'll bolt on you when the heat comes back in, in spring. I mean, that's that, that's why it's one. Of, and it's also just I love broccoli as a crop. Um, it's one of the things I miss most about Pennsylvania as a kid. I would grow for my grandmother and grandfather an entire row, two plants. So our rows were pretty narrow. So we would do two plants per row uh, with grass in between the rows. I don't do that anymore either. That sucked. That was another part of why I had to dig every year. But so you would have like, I believe it was uh, two dozen broccoli plants on each side, so 48 broccoli plants. And you get that first crop, you get the big heads, and I bring those up to her, and she would process them and, and, and blanch and freeze uh, all of them. And then all summer long, literally every day to every other day, I would go down to that, that row of broccoli with a little bench and a silver bucket about, the you know, what, probably two-gallon silver bucket. I can remember the galvanized little bucket and a knife. And all I would do is cut side shoots off the broccoli. And I would literally fill that bucket every other day all summer long. You can do that almost here in your fall and your winter. You don't get as long of a season before the cold doesn't kill it, but it kind of slows down the production on you. But broccoli is my number one winter crop. Cabbage is another big time winter crop here in Texas. It just doesn't do good in the summer at all. But I remember my grandfather. I can't even tell you how old I must have been. I had to be very young. We weren't living in Pennsylvania. We were living in Florida. So I was at least five, maybe six. And I remember visiting one year up there in the spring. Their spring is like winter here. And I remember my grandfather coming in with a, a sheep wool lined jean jacket. 
And I remember steam coming out of his mouth, and he had a couple big heads of cabbages. And he was bringing them up to the house so my grandmother could make sauerkraut out of them. And so if you want to make sauerkraut, things like that with your cabbage, and you want to grow your own cabbage, this is a great time of year to grow them. And most of the country, even well to the to the north, you'll do pretty well with them. Uh, next up, kale. The only reason I don't grow the crap out of kale is I just don't eat it that much. And so that's I, I put this one in here because it's the it's my exception. I don't really grow kale. It's a great crop to grow. It's an easy crop to grow. What I do grow of it, I eat a little bit here and there. I just don't care for the uh, – it has so much of kind of the cauliflower-type taste to it that I don't care for it as much, but a lot of people like it. But just because I said to grow broccoli, if you don't like broccoli, if you're like George Bush Sr., not going to eat any more broccoli, wouldn't be prudent, then don't grow that, right? So I'm not going to grow a ton of kale. Uh, the ducks and geese don't even seem to like it that much, or I would grow it for them. But kale is a great crop. Like everything in that whole Brescia family is a good thing. Mustards is I'm not on my list, but I'm going to show you something in a minute. Some Matsuma mustard, purple mustard, like just uh, actually it's not mustard. It's um, is it kohlrabi? It's not kohlrabi either. It slipped my head. Right, bok choy, uh, which is a type of cabbage basically, right? A purple bok choy. All of those things do well. Probably the number one crop that you can grow. And will handle the cold, even if it, the tops, you can cover the tops and basically store it in the ground as carrot. And carrot, pretty much, you have got to start your carrot with direct sow. I've never even heard of anybody successfully transplanting carrot plants because you damage that little root that turns into the carrot. But carrot, I, I don't grow a lot of it here. Maybe I'm going to give it a shot again this year. I used to grow them like crazy when I lived in Arkansas, and I would plant them right about, Two weeks from now, like right, right after Labor Day. And they would grow beautifully. And if it got really, really cold, I would just take a whole bunch of straw and just cover the carrot tops. And you could go out in the middle of winter, pull the straw away, grab a carrot top or two, and pull out perfectly kind of stasis carrots. They just don't grow as fast once they're into that cold weather. And they store beautifully. Uh, Ghoulies same, parsnips same. Like anything in that that category of things. Celery will grow right through your uh, your winters, generally speaking, if it hasn't gone to seed and it's not in its second season. Uh, or if you keep it cut, will do really well as well. Uh, and celery root, of course, would be uh, another crop then that you could grow into that time of year. And lastly, your lettuces. Lettuce isn't worth it in the summer in Texas at all. It's not worth it in early fall. It's not worth it in late spring. It's not worth it to your average daytime temperature is in the 80s or below. But God bless lettuce once it is. It just grows and grows and grows and grows and grows for us. It's And it, I don't care how. You plant it in the ground, in the garden, it grows. You plant it in the aquaponic system outdoors, it grows. You plant it in the indoor hydro system, it doesn't matter what time of year it is. You control the light and everything, so that doesn't count. But you can almost just, like you accidentally spilled lettuce on the ground. Like you dropped the package, and when you picked it up, there was a bunch of seed that went on the ground. You come back in three weeks, there's lettuce everywhere. Let us come garden together in in the, the winter. So those are kind of my my biggest Best ones. 
Artichokes, we'll get to that. I'll get to you. But honestly, I have found the best time to start artichokes here is to start artichokes in the early spring, early, early spring and grow them through and establish their roots and then protect them. And they can become perennial in this climate, no problem whatsoever. All right, next, getting an edge on the cool weather. This is where you want to decide, are we going to do any protection or not? Or are we just going to, like, be strategic about where we plant? And one of the biggest things that you can do to protect your plants into your winter is windbreaks. If you can protect your plants from heavy wind, they'll survive Um, they'll survive better for you than if you don't. You'll also find that people think less about irrigation in the winter, and that's fine, except that continuous wind is very soil evaporative. And if you're not getting enough rain or snowfall and melt during that time, you can have a time where it doesn't seem like you need to irrigate, but the plants, maybe they won't die, but they will suffer from a, a lack of moisture. So wind breaks are huge. And a plant can't grow if all the leaves are ripped off of it. So for me, this is actually a bigger concern putting young plants out in the spring than my winter. Our winter winds are they're here, but they're not really bad. Our wind is had like March and April. It's just brutal. You put this little plant out, and it's like. <sighs> so either you're going to do natural wind breaks through plantings that are evergreen or so thick that even when the leaves are off and they're still creating a windbreak, you need to use buildings as windbreaks. I've even had years where I wanted to put my plants out. They needed to go out. This is really more a spring tactic here, but you, same thing in the winter. Uh, in, in your climate, maybe it's different. And I've literally put up, like, plywood, temporary, scrap wood. Like, so you got your plant, and then just a couple feet in front of your plant, you've got, like, a thin strip of plywood. So that when that prevalent wind coming from that direction hits, it's pushed up and over the plant. I've also used, we're going to talk about these in a second, row covers for wind breaks, not just for what row covers do, like a fleece or even the real light netting ones, the ones that you would generally use more to protect from insect. But wind rows or wind breaks of any kind. Next would be southern exposure. If you want to take the approach, I don't really want to put out heavy protection, but I do want to grow later into the season, then one of the things that you can do is simply think about, well, which beds am I going to use and, and, and how, and, and for like, hold on, I'm trying to get this up and it's, it's throwing me off just a second. Let me get back to where we were here. All right. Cause that's the next section. So remember I talked about how, You might have four or five or six or seven garden beds, and you grow them all through the spring and summer because that's your heavy production. And maybe what you say is, I am going to put 80% of my beds to sleep and do less work for my fall garden. I'm only going to use 20% of my production space in the fall. Well, then I would take a really hard look, and I would say, well, of my – 100%, which 20% has the most exposure to the sun in the winter when that sun angle is low? Like my most productive space in my summer period in my main garden is absolutely my two beds that are closest to the east wall of my back shop. Why? Because 
by the like when you get into like three four o'clock in the afternoon, the shade of that building starts to come out over those beds. And by the time you get to like six o'clock, where you guys are like in other climates, you're six seven o'clock, like the temperatures going down, the temperatures freaking going up here. It's going up until nine o'clock at night, and that last two hours from like six to eight, eight thirty, two and a half hours, it's brutal. So those two beds are my go-to beds in the spring. The other two beds, especially the south eastern quadrant bed. That bed gets smacked with sun all day, all day, all the way through, man, almost to the very end. Just a little bit of differential there. Well, that is a great bed for winter because it gets more sun. It stays warmer. It gets warmed up more. The soil warms faster. It retains heat longer. So I think it's really important, not just thinking about southern exposure, western exposure, et cetera, like strategically picking the piece that you're going to use if you're not going to grow everything. Next up, you can use row covers. And here's a brand that I've recommended before. And there is a link that will be in the video notes. These are made by Tierra Garden, and they're called Easy Row Covers. I want to say, and I, this, this picture is of the large size ones. I want to say something about them, though. They, To me, they still have a weakness in that many of the plants that we would use them to protect, especially fall through winter, not just while they're young coming in the spring, are so large that they actually end up hitting against the top of them. If I was really going to go heavy with protecting plants in a raised bed, what I would probably do after having used these is I would take some rebar, I would pound it in the ground, I would take half-inch PVC, and I would put arches between the rebar, just with the tension of the, of the, the bent pipe, And I would throw greenhouse plastic over it, and I would take some scrap wood, the full length of both of the long sides, and I would wrap the greenhouse plastic and staple it to that where it would hold it to the ground. And I would rig something up to where I could go out during the middle of the day and roll them up until they had about six to eight inches of air gap and then attach them with like a temporary um Clamp, like a, like a, a wood clamp would be perfect for this, a heavy wood clamp on both sides and hold that up to let air flow under so it doesn't get too hot during the day on sunny days. And then that way you could go out, take two clamps off and drop it right back to the ground. The ends would just stay covered. And then you could lift up and over to work on your plants. I think that would work better than these because one of the issues with these is working the plant itself. They're very simple to just install. But now you want to go in and harvest. Now you're basically accordioning, accordioning, like an accordion, bringing it back on top of the other plants, working it and putting it back. I found them to be labor intensive. They did absolutely work. I don't want to play these videos. Again, you'll be able to look this up if you want to. But I want to show you, this is one of my garden beds here with them in place, but more here. This is, if you look on the date, this is a purple bok choy and next to it is spinach. The date on this is February 19th, 2020. That was a cold winter. It wasn't as cold as the winter of 21, but this was a cold winter for us. And you can see that plant is gorgeous. They work really well. It's just a matter of do you want to put the full effort necessary into using them? And I think going with something more like, and again, if you don't need to produce a lot through your winter, you just want some fresh stuff, 
indoor production, which we'll do a show on again soon because we haven't done that in a while. But the other option would be something more like a greenhouse. And people tend to think when you say greenhouse, I need this really, really huge greenhouse. And I think that has a lot to do with, but what do you want out of your greenhouse? What are you, what are you looking for from your greenhouse? And if you're looking for starting thousands of plants or something like that or full-time growing in it in certain climates, yeah, you, like, you want the biggest greenhouse you can get. But if you want to be able to produce four or five salads a week, then something like what I'm about to bring up on the screen for you, the Flower House 300, I'm about to bring that up for you right now, um, might be all you need. I'm going to give you a, an, or, and they make larger ones. I've had two of these. Both of them were destroyed by snowfall. So you might think that I'm like, never buy one of these. They suck. They get destroyed by snowfall. That's not how I feel about them. What I would say is if you're going to use, they make, they have incredibly high quality materials, but they can't handle ice and snow load. And we get more ice than snow, and they really can't handle ice load. If you're going to get one of these, once you set it up, they use kind of, they're kind of like setting up a tent. They use a flexible fiberglass pole system, and they're great until they get killed. What happens when they collapse is those fiberglass poles will inevitably break. And when they break, they splinter, and the splintering will put a hole in the greenhouse plastic. If I ever gave one of these a go again, I'd probably go bigger than the one that's on the screen for those watching it. But I would build a, a two by four frame for it. Now I wouldn't frame the whole thing in it. All I'm talking about, if you guys were in the military, if you think about how a GP medium tent goes up, GP medium tent has a great big beam that goes across the roof and it's got two really big stout poles. They go into that beam that goes across that roof, and that beam goes end-to-end end of the building and those two poles. And everything else is pretty much done with some, some corner support poles that aren't that beefy and then staking it into the ground. I would build something like that for this, right? I would build something like that for this, um, and I think you'd have no problems with it. And then I would also stay disciplined With if you get snow and ice, you need to go out and push the top up and get it out. And I wouldn't do what this lady in this picture has done. This is a marketing picture where she is crammed in with stuff. I would grow maybe in ground and one set of shelves. And then the other thing is I would absolutely consider supplemental heat. And I would also grow the type of things in it that could likely make it without protection. But the little bit of protection doesn't really keep them alive it makes them grow faster and be more productive for you. Or go ahead and hard build a small greenhouse. It's up to you. And you guys, I'm going to tell you, in my experience, most greenhouses are built with the wrong orientation. They build them long ways and they point the one end to the south. This, to me, doesn't make a lot of sense. I think you go long dimension, pointing south in your winter sun is all along the front, and then most of your planning is to the back wall, and you don't try to cram it completely full. Or you're going in the ground on your front wall and then on shelves on your back wall so the front plants don't shade out the back plants. 
Don't overplan it. Don't try to cram it full. Lose the trophy hunter mentality. Um, don't have a, a trophy hunter mentality with this at all. Uh, just grow enough to make it worth doing it. And Mike, we should probably do a growing indoors during winter podcast soon. And we should probably do a greenhouse one dedicated to greenhouses. One of the biggest advantages, in my opinion, to a greenhouse is not the production. It's that it's cold out, but it's a sunny day. It's 25 degrees. It's February. You're inside, got the furnace running, the heater running, whatever, 75 degrees. You're feeling good, but you're inside. You go outside, you can see your breath. It's cold. Your face hurts. You don't really want to be there. You go in your greenhouse. You go in your greenhouse, and you stand in your greenhouse, and it's 88 degrees, and the sun's on your body, and it smells like plants, and some stowaway little lizard that's living in there comes out of his hole because it's 88 degrees and runs up on a plant and looks at you and does the head bob at you. And everything's just a little better in your life at that moment. You're out there. You can take your shirt off and suck up vitamin D in the middle of February. If you're, you know, if you've got a little water feature going or something, and I mean, it, that could be a little, that could be a little hydro system, just the sound of water trickling. It's like having Florida in North Carolina, if you do it right. So we'll talk more about that in the future. And uh, I want to go through some of your starred comments now. I hope I got most of them. A few, uh, Super chats and super stickers came through. One from Ghoulie. Thank you guys. Uh, if you do want to tip me, super chats are enabled. Of course, we're on the Fountain app where you can boost and stream the audio version. All you want, somebody asked about the Brave browser and, and, uh, uh, getting, uh, tips in bat. I have it set up, but something went wrong and the people over there won't help me and I can't get to any of it. So I wouldn't send it that way. It's not that I don't take it. It's that it's, I can't get to it. Uh, because of Brave's bullshit integrated deal with, uphold or whoever, and it's just a mess. That's why I, guys, this is one of the reasons I'm such a Bitcoin advocate now. Nothing gets between you and me and Bitcoin. If you, if you use Wallet of Satoshi and you want to send me some sats, thousand sats, what is it, a nickel? On Wallet of Satoshi, you can send it to beefy, beefy Persian 37 at walletofsatoshi.com directly to me, right? If you're using the Aldi extension, you can do that right here on YouTube. Anyway, not a Bitcoin episode. Uh, Rachel says, what would you plant if you were still in Schuylkill County? Honestly, if I were still in Schuylkill County, I wouldn't. I would, it's such a great, like zone six. It's such an amazing spring, summer, early fall cycle growing abundance that what I would do if I still had a garden in Pennsylvania, by the time the first frost comes, I've got all my amendments down. My plants are starting to die from the freeze. I'm cutting my plants, dropping them, mulching one more layer. I'm tarping. I'll see you in spring. And if I wanted to grow in the winter in Pennsylvania, I would do a small heated greenhouse or I would grow indoors with something like indoor hydroponics. That's what I would. I'm not saying you're wrong if you do it the other way. Uh, there are people with big greenhouses up there and they have a mate, like high tunnels and they do cold crops. They have amazing results. But that's what I would, and that's how you ask the question. What would you do? I would, I would stop and I would go deer hunting. I would go deer hunting, squirrel hunting, grouse hunting, rabbit hunting, uh, 
hunting fur bears like coyotes and foxes. And I would, I would spend my winters hunting. And that's what I did when I lived there. Uh, Van Roth 3115 says, Jack, where can I find muscovy ducks here in central Texas? Thanks. Uh, they don't want you to know this, but the ducks in the park are free. All the local parks probably have. No, I'm kidding, but that's an option. Uh, I would check Craigslist and I would check next door. That's how I've always found my muscovy ducks. I don't know central Texas. Um, I live in north central Texas and that's how I've always found mine. Uh, so there we go. Walt says, do you have any veggie plants you prefer to only plant in the fall when they're normally planted in the spring? Yeah, like I said, broccoli. Uh, I don't really grow cauliflower. I don't get a good enough ROI on it. Uh, we eat a lot of cauliflower, but the organic riced cauliflower that's available at Costco is so cheap relative to the cost to grow it. Because cauliflower doesn't produce, and like broccoli, it produces, and then it keeps producing your side shoots. Bro- cauliflower, pretty much, you go through all this crap, you get one head of cauliflower, and then you're done. And that worked really good in Pennsylvania. Remember I talked about the row of broccoli we did? Right next to it, we did a row of cauliflower. And as soon as the cauliflower was, like, almost ready to harvest, I would go down and plant uh, bush bean. And then a bush bean would start growing up underneath it, and then I would go down and cut all of the cauliflower plants out and throw them in the compost, just leave the roots in the ground, and we would grow beans right where the cauliflower was. And so if I lived in that climate, I would still grow cauliflower. But here, if I was going to grow it, I would have to do it in fall, and I just haven't found it to be worth it. Um, that's about it. Oh, carrot. Plenty of people grow carrot in the spring. I find it doesn't really do well for me in my spring. It gets hot too fast. So carrot and broccoli would be the two that I am way more likely that other people would be more likely to grow in the spring. Daniel says, do you remember yet a shrub bush? It produced florets that no, I don't remember. I'm sorry. I don't remember that bush. There's a bush that's perennial that grows florets that are, tastes like broccoli, but I don't remember uh, the name of that bush that I must have talked about one time on the show. I do have a vague memory of discussing it, though. Uh, Hunter says, Jack, does tarping kill the microbiome with the heat and such? No. When you tarp, it, it, let's talk about what you're going to do, how you're going to do it, and why you're doing it. So if I want to do maximum weed kill, then I want to take, and I actually want to, I want to expose the surface of the soil or have a very thin mulch layer. And I want to either do what's called solarizing, which is the clear tarp, or I want to just heat and deny of light, which would be like a black tarp. And that's going to kill maybe an inch, maybe the top inch of soil. And you're going to go an inch into that soil and the temperature is going to drop down into like an inch down, it's going to be like 75 degrees. And two inches down, it's going to be like 68 degrees. And four inches down, it's going to be like 66 degrees. And it's going to be that 66, 68 degree all the way down until you get to a place where it is, you know, it, either you've got fr- permafrost coming in and it starts to freeze or you go down far enough that you get the geothermal energy, right? It's pretty constant temperature down there. So you're only knocking out the biome, if at all, in the very top layer of the soil. So all your critters just go down. Now, Here's the other way that we're going to do it. We're going to put down all the amendments, and we're going to feed the critters. And when we do that, we're going to put a good, like, three, four inches of mulch, and then we're going to tarp. And this is something I left out. I'm very happy you asked this question, dude. 
there's something really important you want to do before you do this tarping thing. You want to water the shit out of it because once you cover it, water can't get in. You want to water it super heavy and hold the moisture in so that down there in the dark and in the nice, cool temperatures, all your soil guys are all happy, and they'll migrate up and down. And what will happen at night, you put all that organic matter, maybe it's a layer of manure, maybe it's some of the integration of, like, green sand or azomarite or any of the mineral things that are integrated with it. You've done uh, old chicken feed or you've done uh, sweet feed is a great amendment, anything like that leaves, whatever you can get, you've thrown on there and you mulched on top of it. So during the day, your wormies, they're going to stay down there in the cool temperature when the sun's beating on it. Well, at night when the sun goes away and that top layer cools off, your wormy guys, they're going to go up there and they're going to start munching. And they're going to take in little pieces of the mineral nutrient, not just the uh, the sweet feed or the organic matter you left for them. They're getting a little bit of that azurite going to go down the gullet. Worms actually have uh, like a primitive form of almost like a gizzard, like that they'll take in some rough material like sand and what have you, and they're going to poop it out and they're going to disperse it through your whole thing. So there's a different tactic. There's tarping just to kill, and then there's tarping as an effective long-term overwintering or oversummering strategy. I didn't say that either, and I, I meant to. So again, I'm like, this is a great question. Just like I said, there might be a bed that you're like, this is the best bed for winter, and I'm going to put all the other beds to sleep, and I'm only going to do this bed in winter. You might have a bed or two that really just get so hammered in the summer that make good winter beds that maybe you grow in them into midsummer, and then when the heat really hits them, I'm thinking about one bed in particular I might do that with this year, this coming year after year now, that you just go, okay. Any production this thing gives me between now and time to plant the fall is not worth taking care of it. And you chop and drop and you do all your amendments and you do your thick mulch and you water the crap out of it and you tarp it until fall. You can go either direction with this. So thanks for that question, man. That was really, that helped me two things that I meant to say and I forgot to say. Daniel says, can you get field, I can't get field peas here anymore. Switching over to buckwheat, livestock loves it located in Washington zone 8A. Okay, so buckwheat, though, is not a good cover crop in the winter because it has no frost tolerance whatsoever. But if you wanted uh, Aust Austrian winter pea and Biomaster winter pea, Uh, you could just look those up, and it's really cheap to order it in, and they'll ship it right to your house. Uh, because, again, I like buckwheat as a cover crop. Livestock do love it. It works really good, but it's a summer crop. It's a, At best, it's a spring, summer, fall crop. Now she's in Washington, coastal Washington, it sounds like, very moderate winter compared to here. Your summer's cooler than me, and your winter's warmer than me. So if it works for you, it works for you. Packrat says, bulk daikon radish seed source. Every place that sells cover crop seeds, Harris seed, any seed, um, almost every one of our seed vendors sells it. Not all of them in bulk. Uh, Eden Brothers, uh, Hearn, like any, just if you put in bulk cover crop seed, almost any place you find is going to sell bulk seed like that. Best seed companies, um, depends on what you want to buy. But I would say if you are an MSB member, go look up all the seed companies that do discounts with us. If they weren't good, I wouldn't have them in there. Any Eden Brothers are both good on large bulk purposes. Victory Seed has done discounts for my members for like 
12 years or 13 years now. I mean, they were one of the first discount providers we had. Uh, Peaceful Valley is a great seed provider, et cetera. Um, DGAM says, what about Malabar spinach for here in Texas? Great summer crop, terrible winter crop. We were talking about fall and winter gardens today. Uh, Malabar spinach is a great crop to grow here in our summers. It loves it. It goes eight shit in our heat, uh, but it doesn't taste like spinach. <laughs> I mean, it is it is a green crop, and spinach is a green crop, and that's where it ends. To me, Malabar spinach has a little bit of the okra quality to it, that little sliminess, but nowhere near as much. Uh, but I grow it a lot in my aviary because it likes to climb up stuff. Uh, Danielle also says, do you think it would be worth it to try and add grow lights in the greenhouse? We are cloudy more than cold. Yes, Um I might, like I said, I might do an indoor show and I'm, and I'm going to probably do a greenhouse show and I'm going to kind of mention that in both. It's actually a really great strategy. And my item of the day, by the, by, item of the day today, by the way, is, is a, a light. It's a really great strategy. If you're growing in a greenhouse, especially if you're doing something like you're doing a hydro or aquaponics, like pipe or NFT system, we have like one long ass thing with lots of greens in it. And then you got another one over top of it, like a vertical wall of them to put a single, uh, run of grow lights over top of your greens. Like it's a greenhouse. The sun is free, but like she's saying, it's cloudy, but it's really not that. So then what we do is we figure out when the sun comes up and when the sun goes down and we run those lights every evening for two hours after the sun goes down and maybe one hour before it comes up. So we have it on a, maybe a more sophisticated timer system. Or if you want to stick with the simple timers, uh, that would be a little bit complicated with a simple unless you had a programmable timer. Just run it for three hours every morning or run it for three hours every afternoon. I would be more inclined to run it in the evening because the plants are warmed up and going then and you have your coldest temperatures and your least growth activity in the morning. So then I would do like, if the sun goes down at five, maybe from five to eight, you run those lights or put a little overlap. So let's say the sun's going to go down at five, 445, the lights come on, the lights run till 8 p.m. and they turn off. And that's a great way to extend growth. And you haven't put that much energy into the equation. You've only extended the lighting. Uh, Carlos, Carlos gave me two bucks on a super chat. Thank you. He said, do you ever do indoor aquaponics? Well, uh, I do a lot of indoor hydroponics. I have done some indoor aquaponics. I find that my in my true indoor activity is not all year long. So doing it with aquaponics would be a lot more complicated than it would be worth for me. I am a big aquarium enthusiast, but my aquariums are not really set up to do aquaponics. They're set up to be aquariums. So I do hydro indoors, but there's nothing wrong with the approach of uh, doing it outdoors. Uh, THP3 Free says, what about tubers, red, white, and sweet? I don't know what that means. I don't know what that means, red, white, and sweet tubers. Um, I grow red, white, and sweet. I guess that would be, there's carrots that are that, but we did cover some tuber crops. If you want to, if you're still here and you want to, uh, clarify that, I will come back around one more shot for you guys on the other end. Uh, Artichoke, good to start now. You can, but like I said, I found in my climate in, in north central Texas, best time to start artichoke is very early spring, 
get a good, hardy, robust, little angry-looking uh, pit bull-type plant going in a pretty big start cup. Don't start artichokes. And I think we're talking about globe artichoke here, not Jerusalem artichokes. Just throw those things in the ground if you're talking about Jerusalem artichoke. But a pretty good-sized pot, like, you know, like a half gallon. And get them really, really robust. Put them out after the danger of hard, you don't worry about frost, but hard freezes over. Mulch and protect the hell out of them into their first summer. Get them through their first summer. Mulch the shit out of the root system going into your winter. And you can, and, and this is like zone 7B here. I have had, I have not tried to do it on this property, but I've had two other properties where I've parentalized, uh, globe artichoke and I've had no problems. I don't grow them now because they're a lot of work and I don't eat that many of them. But I probably should grow a few just because they would be cool to have around. And uh, Gooley says, do you accept Brave, Brave Browser uh, bat tips? I already covered that one, so we'll let that one go. Uh, I will come back over here. Uh, the guy who was asking about tubers said, potatoes, red, white, or sweet as a fall crop. If you want to do potatoes in my climate, regular potatoes, then a, they're a great fall crop. If you want to do sweet potatoes in my climate as a fall crop, you better have planted them in the spring and taken care of them through the summer. They're, they take too long to form. Uh, but potatoes for us in north central Texas make a better spring crop and a small form potato. So I, I don't have a lot of experience growing potatoes because I don't eat a lot of potatoes. But we do grow a lot of sweet potato, and we, we feel – Uh, and then somebody's asking Danielle, was it broccoli Rob? No, no, this was a perennial bush. Uh, and I, I just can't for the life of me remember it. That, that grows, it's not a broccoli at all. It just is very similar to broccoli. John Paul Jones says, I'm in the North Georgia mountains with hard rocky clay. I'm thinking about one foot of wet hay, one foot of mulch and throwing the works and chickens out to make soil. Is this a good starting point? Yeah. If you're going to put chickens. So I'll tell you that I am not a fan of using hay as a mulch if it's not going to be worked after you put it down because hay gets a glee to it like a gel and a mat and an anaerobic and a stink. So if the chickens are going to go into it, have at it. If you're just going to lay it down and leave it, then I want to use straw, not hay. Uh, I've seen hay turn into some pretty nasty... Um, nasty stuff. Are there any aquatic plants that do better in cooler temperatures? Uh, not really. Uh, aquatic plants, even if they do well, um, if they do well in the cooler weather, fall is not the time to start them, right? They're, they're plants that maybe kind of come back with a little bit of uh, uh, heating things up. Uh, Jason sent me a five large super chat. Says question about using ducks to seal a 1.5 acre leaky pond. How many and how to keep them on the pond and protected from predators? You're not going to do it. You're not going to seal a leaky one and a half acre pond with ducks. Um, it it's too ambitious. The amount of duck manure you would need to seal a pond like that um, would exceed what the damage they would do to the ecological system of the pond. You would have to pretty much it's not doable. It's too, it's, it's too ambitious. I'm sorry. Um, it's just not the way to go. You probably want to use, 
if you can figure out where the pond is leaking, you could seal it with bentonite a hell of a lot easier. Even a pond that size could possibly be sealed by seeding bentonite into the pond. But that is something at that size of a pond that I would want to get somebody involved with and determine why it's leaking in the first place. But you're, you, you can't do it with ducks, not the way you're inferring, in my opinion. You, 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 would, you would kill all life in the pond. You, it, 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 duck sealing a pond, it's not that type. We're talking about small ponds. We're talking about something that you could, uh, you could do over a couple, three weeks. Uh, if you had a pond that size, it could potentially be done with glee, but it would require it to be uh, – It would. Re- we're outside the scope of today's podcast. But I'm going to give you this one anyway. So a pond of that size, if you were to be done with glee, would have to first be drained. You would then lay down a layer of manure several inches deep across the whole one and a half acres. You would plant it in a rapidly growing green plant like buckwheat. You would then roll it flat. You would then apply another layer of manure and roll it flat. And by the time you did all that, that's great back in the day when that was the only tech we had. It would have been easier to just seal it with bentonite clay. So I, I, I think you need to get some help with a project of that size. Anyway, with that, I appreciate everyone who's been here today. I wanted to uh, let you guys know that we you can help support this show, of course, by doing your online shopping where? At tspaz.com. And I wanted to let you guys know about our item of the day today. Item of the day is grow lights, and I did do that for a reason. And uh, they're the Barina LED grow lights in six packs of two and four foot lights. Uh, this has become one of the best selling things I've ever brought to T-Spaz. I have sold well over a thousand sets of this, of the, uh, the, the longer lights and probably over 2000 sets of the two foot lights. Uh, they're on sale today at $99.99 for, um, the four foot lights and $64.99 for the two foot lights. Uh, This is good for starting plants indoors. It's good for growing plants indoors. And it's good for extending your greenhouse by lighting out and doing supplemental lighting in your greenhouse. And that is exactly why I brought them around today. But remember, no matter what you buy, if you start your online shopping at tspaz.com, you help the survival podcast and the work we do. You also can become a member. Members get discounts on seeds. I'm just saying. Members get discounts on butcher box. Members get Uh, discounts on silver at JM Bullion. Members get so many discounts that the membership pays for itself. And I want to say real quick here to John over at Special Operations Equipment, thanks for the $20 super chat. That's another way that you can support us. And I'm going to turn off his link just real quick so you can see John's shirt that John sent to me this weekend. And it says, um, you are the carbon they are trying to reduce. You and your family are the carbon they're trying to reduce. If you actually care about carbon and soil, you should be talking about planting trees and growing gardens, not taxing people, right? That would be how we would actually handle that. So, John, uh, thanks again for the $20 Super Chat, man. I appreciate that. I appreciate everybody that showed up today, and I'll be back tomorrow. Tomorrow, we will have an episode of the Bitcoin Breakout. And you guys keep hearing me talk about the fold card. And I keep telling you, if you don't use the fold card to pay the bills you're going to pay anyway, like your groceries, we pay our health insurance, I pay for my web server with it, you hate money. You hate money. Uh, 
And so don't hate money. Well, tomorrow I have Jeremy Hall from Fold coming on the Bitcoin breakout to talk about the Fold card, to talk about the Bitcoin network, to talk about how to earn cash back in Satoshis. Here's the beautiful thing. When you earn cash back on a credit card, you know what the IRS says about it? It's a discount. It's not income. It's a discount. It's paid on the Lightning Network, and it's not taxable. Now, it would be taxable when you spent it or you sold it, but it's not taxable upon receipt. And I'm not even sure if it, we're going to have to ask if it's not income when I spend it. You see what I'm saying? You might want to get the fold card. There's a link in the video notes. There'll be a link in the episode notes as well. And you might want to check the show out tomorrow, even if you're not typically down with the Bitcoin content. Um, and these are available at Original SOE Gear, uh, SOE Tactical Gear. You can look that up and you can find these shirts because somebody was saying they wanted one. Get on over there and get it. And I'll also let you know that shirts, hats, stuff like that for TSPC, TSPC swag is coming soon. Really soon. We just got some sample stuff back. It's awesome. I'll have a picture put out later today on it and I will catch you guys tomorrow. Again, Get that link down there because not only can you start earning sats back, you use my link for the fold card, you get 5,000 sats when you sign up for it. Take care, guys. You pull yourself up, they keep bringing you down. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? You should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Yeah.